I was just kind of complaining to my mom. It's like, I don't know what's going on. Like this, this is, this is really bad. This, this might be, this might be it. I might not be able to keep dancing because this is, this is immobilizing me. And I just don't get what's going on. And I was 19 and she looked at me and she said, well, Trent, that's because you were born with cerebral palsy. <laughs> I was like, wait, 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 what? Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit adhdessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? October, as you may or may not be aware, is ADHD Awareness Month, which means I have some virtual expos and events to share with you. The links for each of these will be in the show notes. First, the ADHD Awareness Expo. It runs all month throughout October. I'll be talking about using pumpkin spice-like strategies to treat ADHD. It's hosted by Tara McGillicuddy, and other guests include Sharon Celine, Inger Shea-Colsey, and Caroline McGuire. Also, the On the Right ADHD Trail Summit runs from October 15th until the 18th. In it, I will share lessons I learned from COVID. It's hosted by Kathy Goett, and other guests include Melissa Orlov, Evan Kirstein, and Ari Tuckman. Finally, I will be on the ADHD Simplicity at Home Summit with Veronica Hunter, live on October 22nd at 11 a.m. Once again, the links for each of these events will be in the show notes. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maben. There's a live Q&A the second Tuesday of every month at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to learn more and to register. If you want to support this show, a great way to do so is by providing a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcast player of choice may be. It helps others find us through that wild algorithm magic. Of course, this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. You can learn more about his work at idealvideostrategies.com. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Trent McIntyre, founder of fireupyourbrain.com and the creator of the Brain Speedball. Trent became a professional dancer after rehabilitating his own severe movement restrictions caused by a brain injury at birth. And he's continued to work on understanding how the mind-body connection and neuroplasticity can be used to address challenges of attention, emotional regulation, and movement. In today's episode, Brent shares his story and talks to us about his work with physical movement and the senses to address neurodiverse and developmental challenges. We discuss failing first grade, cerebral palsy, the importance of engaging our senses, why clear goals and measuring outcomes matter, and the power of play. All right, let's get rolling. 
So my name is Trent McIntyre, and for about 25 years, I've been helping people overcome their, their movement limitations that are specifically related to brain performance. And that all ties to you know, my own background in history, which I'm sure we'll dive into, but it's a, it's a story that I've lived personally with ADHD, not a label back then, but <laughs> we know now that's what it was, with my own being born with a brain injury, having kids with ADHD, and just a lot of life experience with that. The, the majority of my work I do now is helping parents and kids overcome and create some strength around the side effects and complications related to it. I understand you failed first grade. I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it turns out to be the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, it, it was a situation where um, we moved we moved districts from my, my, my kindergarten to first grade and the reading was just not at the same place. And there was no communication from my teacher to my parents. And so at the end of the year, it was like, oh, he's failed. He's got to repeat it. And it was like, wait a minute, there was no sign. There was no signal all along. And he's like, yeah, well, he's just hasn't been able to do the work all year round and he's got to repeat it. And really repeating it was the best thing for me, as it turns out, because that what, what seems like so much shame around having to repeat something and failing something and your kids having to do summer school or repeating a grade or whatever it might be really gave me a chance to catch up and create a, a little more strength going into the rest of my schooling because having that deficit, because I stayed in that school for the rest of my, my schooling up through high school, if I'd stayed in that deficit, that would have been just a domino effect through everything. The part of that story that amazes me is that no one took the perspective that your teacher failed first grade. Right. Because that's my view, right? If that teacher never communicated with your parents yeah. and didn't take the necessary steps to make sure you were making the progress you needed to make, that's on the teacher. That's not on you. Yeah. And, you know, after, after um, the dust kind of had settled and my parents knew that I, that I was going to repeat first grade, the principal did a home visit to apologize. A little, a little backstory, I come from a very small town of like 310 people still today. It's very tiny. So the principal has time <laughs> to do a home visit <laughs> to one of the students because it's a, there, there aren't a lot of students. But yeah, it was like, yeah, this was wrong. This should have been corrected early on. And I'm really sorry. Wow. Nothing to change at that point. But yeah, she was, she felt bad. I assume you had a different teacher the second time through. Yeah. And Mrs. Roberts, Mrs. Roberts changed my life. You know, it's that one person that you get in your life that sees you and knows how to, how to make you feel seen. And I mean, it's like of all the teachers I remember, my first grade teacher, she's just, was awesome. There was, Cause there was, once I started school, there was no shame. I was in first grade and Mrs. Roberts and everything was fine and she was able to help. So it's pretty awesome. Now I wanna own up to my own misunderstandings, my own biases, I guess. Part of your story is cerebral palsy. Yeah. And my bias is that like, how can this guy be doing this level of work if he has cerebral palsy. Yeah. Because most of the time, at least that I've encountered cerebral palsy, it's pretty severe. And evidently you are not affected as significantly. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that and, and maybe clear up some misunderstandings around what cerebral palsy is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, first of all, it's got a terrible name. It just does not reflect what really goes on and doesn't reflect um, the spectrum that can happen with it. So uh, most people... That you, that you might know that have that were born with cerebral palsy um, are probably what, what we looked at like a class three or higher. And there's different ways of rating it, but let's just say there's a, there's a way of rating it class one through five. 
And when you get to class three, you notice a difference in their gait. They walk different. They might need some assistance, a cane, a walker. And then eventually you get up to class five and they have a wheelchair and they're fully dependent on, on other people to help them do the things they need to do. We're used to seeing when there's something obvious in front of us, we, we can see it. But there's a lot of people that are born with a brain injury, which is what it is. You're born with basically a, a head injury. And the part of your brain that you need to create the, your, your function is injured. And so depending on how injured that is, it, it affects how limited your abilities are. And so how it showed up for me, and I would be classified like a class one plus maybe, is that I, I learned how to walk on the balls of my feet because I actually didn't have any range in my ankles. I couldn't put my heels down when I was standing because my, the, the injury had created such shortness in my Achilles tendon that I just physically couldn't even touch it to the ground. And there are toe walkers that can touch their heels to the ground. This was a situation where I literally couldn't put my heels down. And that was actually in my 20s before I could lift my arms over my head. So those are the two main places that affected me in my shoulders and in my, my lower leg. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, why would they? Unless, unless you've experienced it or done the research or read about it, you wouldn't know. You would just think, well, when I see somebody who has a really hard time walking or they have what looks like an unusual gait, you probably, oh, that's probably cerebral palsy. You know, you can kind of lump it in that category. And it's interesting too, you kind of just alluded to it where you were in your 20s before you could raise your hands up over your, over your shoulders and over your head. Yeah. So you've done a lot of work physically to improve, I guess, the effects of cerebral palsy in your brain. And that's why I've got you on is to this sort of reverse approach in my mind, right? Because I do like, my, my work is all about changing our perspectives and reframing how we look at things and learning cognitively information on how to do stuff more effectively with ADHD and also navigating that emotional side. But you come at it from this more physical perspective. And that's, I've kind of been on a little bit of a kick with the, with the physical angle of ADHD. So a reason that I'm really excited to have you on is to start talking about this. So what is the work that you were doing personally to navigate some of the physical limitations that you had as a result of the way your brain had been injured at birth? Yeah. So I'll say there's a couple of things to note here is that it's not degenerative. So it doesn't get worse and worse. I'm healed from my brain injury, but having that injury for that period of time, whatever's injured in healing, isn't, you're not, it's unaccessible in your development. So you learn how to compensate around it and you build, you, you learn how to walk, you learn how to do X, Y, and Z without having access to that part of your brain or those, those connections. And so I did, I, I became a master of compensation, but it didn't stop me from being athletic. I, I was very athletic. I was very fast. You know, I was, I was six foot by the time I was in sixth grade and uh, basketball. I love playing basketball. And I was also very creative, but you know, the, the, the cerebral palsy had created a lot of stiffness and weakness in my body. And so actually I got into dance and it, it turned out to be incredible. It's part of my story because it became something that first helped me feel better because of all the, the strengthening and the mobility and the stretching and and also with regulation, because there's so much rhythm involved with dancing, that was just something that made me feel really good. But up until this point, I was 17 when I started dancing. Um, I didn't know I had cerebral palsy. There was no, there was no conversation or sharing that, that was something that I was dealing with. I just felt like my limitations were something that were normal. Everybody had, everybody felt this way. Everybody had these tightnesses and these weirdnesses in their body. It was just normal. I didn't question it. And then I went away to college. I got a scholarship to dance, and go to get a four-year degree. And I, I went and, you know, about halfway through my, my training and 
I was doing uh, a lot of activity. I was doing Pilates. I was lifting weights. I was running. I was dancing every day of the week. And then I woke up one morning and I could, I could barely walk. I was inflamed from the knees down. I had so much pain that I just would like shuffle to the shower, hoping to get warm enough and to get something moving enough that I could get through my day. And that kind of correlated with being home for holiday. And I was just kind of complaining to my mom. It's like, I don't know what's going on. Like this, this is, this is really bad. This, this might be, this might be it. I might not be able to keep dancing because this is, this is immobilizing me and I just don't get what's going on. And I was 19 and she looked at me and she said, well, Trent, that's because you were born with cerebral palsy. <laughs> I was like, wait, 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 what? It was like, you know, the, the beauty of not having a label, not being like told something that there's wrong with you, but also you knew this whole time and you didn't tell me and <laughs> this, I felt this way and there's a reason I felt this way. So it's, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword there a little bit. Um, she's like, yeah, don't you remember when you were three? And, you know, I do remember, but three is a long time ago at that point. She's like, yeah, that the doctor cast your legs. They, they cast and forced your heels to the ground because you didn't have any ankle mobility. And then when she said that, I had all these memories flooding back, mainly of my older brother who thought it was funny to put garbage bags on my legs and throw me in the snowbank because that I couldn't get out. It would be like Whoa. the older brother torturing you, you know, and that normal stuff, it, nothing that hurt me, but it was just like, that's the memory that came back. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, brother torture around the whole thing. Normal stuff when your brother just trapped you in a snowbank for hours on end. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. So I was like, wow. And, and that was that was a, one, one of the defining moments for me where it really let me on fire to try to solve this. And at that point, there wasn't common literature that you could find and get access to that talked about the brain being plastic. They talked about being able to repattern and create new brain connections that would have influence on how well your body performed. But what I did to answer your question, the long answer to your question is, I, since I was already doing exercises that made me stronger, but they weren't helping, and I was doing movement therapies that were really good, but they didn't make me stronger. So I put them together and started to just get creative and try to find exercises that would help me recover. And I, I would just note things in a journal that worked, things that didn't work, things that made it better, how long it made it better. And then I rehabbed my own injury without any other professional helping me. And that became the start of what would become what I do with other, with other people. So when I could test on guinea, my guinea pigs, if you will, people that were willing to try you know, my, my approach. While you're treating your own injuries, while you're sort of improving your flexibility and your range of motion, is it having a cognitive effect? Are you more focused? Are you better able to manage your emotions? Or is it primarily just range of motion, physical aspects? Yeah, it's, it's directly connected to the, my goals. I wanted to dance professionally. I wanted to get through this degree. I wanted to be the first person in my family to get a four-year college degree, you know? There was a lot around it. So when I had lost hope for a little while that that wasn't going to be possible, it, it, it's connected to everything. It's connected. I mean, I think it's why today I still, when I'm helping people, I, I want to focus on what they're trying to accomplish in their life, not whatever their label or diagnosis is, because that's real and good and true. But what are they trying to do in their life? And what can we, how can we connect how I work with them and what, how they do things on their own to a goal they have? So for me, when I was able to recover I, I could reestablish my goals and, and have the confidence and know that it, it was still possible. I ask that because one of the things I'm observing right now is I'm having a lot of trouble fitting like physical movement into my schedule. And a lot of that is it's the summer schedule and my schedule is super inconsistent because sometimes I'm taking my kids to camp and sometimes I'm not, and it's a half day or a full day and it's just, nothing's regular. So I'm not getting that rhythm in. 
except for with my Kempo practice. So I go to Kempo every Thursday evening for two hours, and then I'm at Kempo Saturday mornings for two hours. And that's relatively recent that we've had that shift because COVID undermined everything. And we're just now kind of coming back together to be where we were. It's really noticeable to me that from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm much more clear headed. I'm much more on top of things. It starts to fall off around Monday, which is not the best timing because that's when I need to do like job stuff. Um, and I kind of have to keep myself up for clients. And then maybe I'm not checking that email. Maybe I'm not following through on that thing that I need to follow through as effectively as I might. And so I'm really hyper aware of the nature of physical activity and, and in particular, the kind of stuff that we do in martial arts, where there's balance work, there's cardio work, there's repeated patterns of forms and stuff, um, which I imagine is connected to what you've been doing and, and your work, maybe not in a one-to-one way, but sort of spiritually, I would imagine that it's sort of connected and not spiritually like religion, but like in the same con- conceptually. So I'm, I'm curious about that component. And I, and I know that you have, you have a brain speedball that you work with, with your clients, right? That is a piece of training attention and training focus and those sorts of things. So that, that's kind of why I'm heading in this direction. Yeah. You know, what's, what's, what we, there's a couple of things we know. We know that the brain can change. We know the brain is plastic. There's research and publications that, that show that, which is awesome. Cause now we can talk about it. Now we have a language around it, which is beautiful. And then I think contextualizing that for what does that mean and how do you get access to that? How, how do you break into those pieces? And the physical component is really important because there's no difference between the physical and the mental. There's, no, there's not a disconnection. There's actually integration between physical and mental. The brain and the body, they're literally connected. And we also know that if you increase the perception through your senses, you can increase the action and the output of everything that you do, whether that's focus, regulation, feeling, feeling confident, et cetera, relieving anxiety, sort of feeling on top of your schedule, um, not feeling as overwhelmed, those kind of things. So when we think about how we're used to measuring our senses, think about how we measure eyes. We, we go to the eye doctor, we sit still, we look forward, we don't move our eyes, we hold very still, and we measure acuity. How clear can you see something? How Read the letters are the, the numbers and the lines. And then when it gets blurry, we know where your prescription is for visual acuity. And that's kind of where it ends for the majority of people. But the reality is that the brain receives a ton of information from the eyes. In fact, it prioritizes information that comes in through the eyes over all the other senses. It's the most important sense that we have and how we organize what we do from our brain. And that's, that's an important aspect when it comes to physicality. So to, to make this physical... And yeah, we talk, to talk about the brain speed ball. I play a game of catch. So we have you know, this bright orange ball that has A through Z and one through 12 on it. And we play a game of catch so that we can actually build in eye tracking and brain performance with a physical game. And that makes it much faster in a few minutes, much more profound results that we can measure. That physical component is, has been removed so much from our life. I mean, think about recesses that are pulled out of schools and I was just talking to somebody the other day about this. It was like, you know, look at what happens on a playground. You, you sit on a swing and you go back and forth. And that's great vestibular training, your inner ear, working on balance and where the horizon is while you're moving. You go on a merry-go-round and spin. That's another way to challenge the inner ear and your visual system. And you play dodgeball and you play kickball and you have hand-eye coordination. It's all for your senses. So then 
when you go back to the rest of your school, after you've calmed down for a few minutes and your system's, you know, not as sweaty, <laughs> more regulated. And I think a lot of a lot of people look at that and like, oh yeah, you got all your energy out, so now you can calm, you can just focus. But it's actually you got your systems working together, you got your senses really fired up and engaged through that physical component of actually training your senses. So for me, it's all about training your senses because that we, if we get better perception through your senses, we get better action, whatever goal that is for you. So you're not even talking about physical activity as getting your cardio up, increasing your heart rate, breathing more deeply, becoming stronger. You're talking about it specifically around things like proprioception and the vestibular system and, and these senses even beyond your sort of typical sight, taste, touch, smell. You're moving even beyond those senses. That's awesome. That That's fantastic. If you think about doing cardio, like it's great. That's a great exercise for your heart. Fantastic. If you're going to um, do strength training, Pilates, weights, whatever you're doing, you are going to make the muscles stronger. You're going to work on your mobility and coordination of your joints. And it's the same thing for your senses. Making your senses, your eyes and your inner ear, but especially your eyes, stronger. Physically, the muscles of the eyes, stronger. Having the both eyes improve coordination so they can work together in a more efficient manner and improving range of motion. It has profound effect. And so we're used to doing that with our with body parts that we can look at, but we can't look at our eyes. And that's one of the things I think is like, because we can't look at our eyes when we're training them, we kind of forget that they're something to address and they're the most important pathway and highway into brain performance. So I'm curious about the brain speed ball. Yeah. How are you using the letters and numbers on it to train tracking? Are you saying like, watch the Y? Because I'm imagining the ball is spinning. So how do I, at some point, the Y disappears from my view just because the ball turns and I can't see it anymore. Yeah. So if you and I were playing the game back and forth and I, I'd throw the ball to you. And first, I want to make sure you can catch the ball. That's an important piece of it because I've made that mistake with some people where just because they were high performance athletes doesn't mean they can catch a ball, by the way. <laughs> so, and it doesn't mean that they're not afraid of a ball. So you want to make sure that catching a ball has some kind of comfort. And if you have to roll the ball, you can roll the ball. So it doesn't have to be something that's thrown. But if I throw the ball to you and you can catch it, I would just ask you to, to catch it and tell me what you see. So you catch the ball and then say P and throw it back to me. And I throw it back to you. You'd catch it again, nine. And we go back and forth. So you're tracking the ball coming into your hands. You don't, have to, you don't have to know what to look for ahead of time. You're actually gonna tell me what you see. And what this does is that you're sensing where the ball is, you're sensing what's on the ball, your brain's deciding what to do with that, and then you're acting on it by saying it out loud. And that sense, decide, act is a, is a cycle that's already happening in our brain all the time. We take information in through our senses, we decide what to do about it, and then we act on it. So by playing the game like this, where you have to do that cycle, but it's a game, it's fun, and it's creative when you keep it, you keep it fun and creative, then you don't even realize that you're doing brain performance because you're keeping it a fun game. This is reminding me of the, I'm going to go with myth because I don't know if it's a true story or not, about Ted Williams, the, the Red, Boston Red Sox. There's a story out there that during World War II, he was in the Air Force and he'd be, he would like shoot down enemy fighters. And then he'd come back to the, to the base and be like, yeah, I shot down like this plane and its serial number was blah, 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 blah. Cause he had that kind of tracking from being such a great hitter. And the, the military was like, yeah, we, we don't need the serial numbers. I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's over. That's overkill Ted. <laughs> We're all set. That tracking is important, certainly for athletes, but you're saying it's critical just to in general, to be able to develop this ability. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll use my own story and I'll tell you some of the stories of some kids that I work with. But for me, you know, when I got to third grade, I told you, but I failed first grade, so I was behind. By the time I got to third grade, my third grade teacher didn't like my reading ability. She's like, he, he parent-teacher conferences is like, yeah, he really needs to work on his reading. And since reading is really hard for him and he, he struggles with it, what we're going to do is we're going to give him more reading. The thing that you really, you really hate, <laughs> it's really hard. We're going to double up on that. And if you think about in third grade, when I was a kid, we didn't have homework. That wasn't something that existed at the, at the time. But I did because I couldn't read fast enough in school to get my work done before school was over. I always had to take work home to do. So what my teacher ended up doing was giving me more homework. And so I remember, I wish I still had it. I had this green like tackle box that had this book series in it and you'd read the book and then you'd have to answer the questions to show comprehension. It was torture. It was just torture. And I would get one or two sentences into reading and my, what my brain would do was I would just fall asleep. It would just, it would just like knock me out. And, you know, fast forward, you know, through surviving that, surviving college by reading standing up so I wouldn't fall asleep, reading early in the morning, I went to audiobooks. It's like, okay, listen, reading's hard. I'm just going to listen to everything that I can. And I, I had a client that was coming in and I was telling her about a, a book series that I was reading. And of course, I wasn't reading it. I was listening to it. But I had, at the time, I had shame around listening to something that I should be reading. And I said, it's such, it's such a great book. I really should get the next book for my plane trip to California for the conference I'm going to. And the next day she came in and she brought me the book, the physical book. She said, here, now you can read this on your trip. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I've got to download the audiobook and like make sure I listen to it before I come back so I can tell her how much I loved it. <laughs> all, this, all this manufacturing of stuff that I thought I had to do. And so I, I packed the book. I went to my conference. And actually at that conference is where I met a vision therapist that did a couple eye exercises with me that they would do in the clinic for mostly for kids that were really struggling with, with eye strength and mobility and coordination. And it was like, wow, that was, that was incredible. And I don't know what just happened, but that felt amazing. And I feel better in my body. And I went back to my booth and a friend had stopped by and I'd missed her. So she wrote me a note and I picked the note up and I read it like I've never read in my life. It was just like, is this really what reading is like? This, this fast and easy and doesn't give me a headache, doesn't make me fall asleep. And it was that moment where I, the two worlds of recovering my own injury and realizing how important the eyes were just like really lit everything on fire. And then I was like, okay, we need to bring the senses into everything that we do. That sounds like magic to me. Yeah, I know it does. That's, that sounds a little too good to be true. Did it stay where you were? It was easier for you to read or did, did it sort of slowly become harder? What was that look like? I read the entire book on the plane trip home in four and a half hours. I got home. I told my wife, I was like, I get to get the rest of this book series. It's such a great book series. And she's like, wait a minute, you mean audiobook? I'm like, no, I want to get the rest of the book series. She's like, who are you? What'd you do with my husband? Because you don't read. I'm like, I do now. And if you have, if anything, if you have such a deficiency, you've just, you've never done something and you, you, you trigger something, you trigger a connection. And then of course I reinforced it. I kept doing exercises. It wasn't like I did one exercise and stopped, didn't do anything ever again, but it was enough to show me such a difference that it was possible to really lean into that direction. It sounds also like kind of like the, was it the five minute mile? Like no one could run a mile in less than five minutes. And then somebody did. And all of a sudden everyone and their mom can run a mile in less than five minutes because they kind of got through that mental hurdle. It sounds like that might be in here too, right? Like I could see a scenario where, you, you do this visual coordination test and do some of this vision therapy and that strengthens your eye muscles to let your eyes coordinate more effectively. That makes reading easier for the next 12 hours or whatever, but it also gets you past that mental hurdle. It sounds like that's in here somewhere. 
where you were like, oh, I that's a thing now. I can do that now. Yeah. And now you're doing it without even worrying as much and, and having as much effort in there. Yeah, I think when you can identify the deficit and you, you create that awareness, then you 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 can move in that direction. Because I, I think about not having that awareness that my eyes didn't work well together. This I just reading was terrible, and I'm talking to people who love to read. I'm like, well, how do you love to read? It feels so gross <laughs> in my body, <laughs> physically, feels terrible, and I fall asleep and I can't even get through a book. Well, that's because their eyes work together because they don't have coordination issues with their eyes. And I, I do think it's really worth mentioning to make it really clear and simple for people. Ideally, your eyes, you want your eyes to see the same exact thing at the same exact time. So you have an image from each eye, but because you're looking at the same place at the same time, those images, like you can think of them like overlapping. So that's, you only see one, I see one of you, I don't see two of you, right? So if your eyes don't coordinate, then typically what happens is you might have double vision so you have one slightly different, like offset, one image from one eye, one image from another eye. Or what can happen a lot and what happened for me is that your brain will just suppress one of the images. So you see one thing, but it's because the brain is just suppressing the other image. And that is what makes me fall asleep because it's so much brain processing power to suppress that image, to not make double vision, that it would just like, like two sentences in, fall asleep as if I had been drugged. And so by getting my eyes to track and like playing this game, we can find where you have deficits. We can actually play the game in different angles to see where you have weaknesses to improve the strength in all the ranges of motion. So we can get you out of being still measuring how sharp your eyes are to actually getting both eyes to move in all directions together at the same time. That's awesome. And, and I know that like with ADHD, there's vertical hematoma is a, is a thing that goes along with ADHD and further complicates things. Uh, my friend Renee Brooks has a whole blog post and articles and stuff about that specific issue because she's been affected by it. Even things like eye movement desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing, which is EMDR, which is a treatment for PTSD. So there's plenty of eye work already happening in, in relation to mental health in relation to ADHD. Right. So that's part of why I'm finding this so interesting is I'm, I'm making these other connections beyond even what you're describing. One thing that I've noticed in doing this work is that there's a lot of fear that comes up. When you, when you start touching on something that's deficient and you already have a label, you're already, you don't focus well, you have ADHD, you can't this, you can't that, you should this, you should that, you know, all of these things. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety that gets wrapped up and around that. When you can come in through fun, the brain is like, okay, this is cool. I love this. And so we're just playing a game and we're not talking about therapy and we're actually going to talk about whatever label you have and whatever thing that you, you're dealing with that's important and true, but we're going to play a game and know that by getting your senses stronger, by creating a rhythm with this game, it's great for ADHD, by creating reciprocity and playing this game, by challenging you and by you coming up with your own games and getting buy-in that we can actually measure results. And I, that's, that's one thing that I'm really a big proponent of is that, yeah, I can tell you a story and tell you what happened for me, and, but I don't know what's gonna happen for you. What we wanna do is measure. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? What is it that you, you can't do or you wanna do better? We do that, then you play the game and you measure it again. And you keep measuring so that you can experience and raise your awareness about what's happening in your own life. That measurement is critical because otherwise, you're not getting the feedback that you need. And especially for folks with ADHD, right? Because we have poor working memory. 
we don't remember well to begin with. So having a place where you're writing down the data that you need to have written down is pretty important just so that we can keep track of the progress we're making or not making and remember and say like, oh, that's why this thing worked or didn't work. Because sometimes we can even find patterns that we might otherwise miss. Even if we didn't write stuff down, we might start to notice like, oh, every Wednesday I'm performing less effectively relative to the other days around it. What's going on? And Oh, because Tuesday is pizza night. And maybe that's yeah. slowing me down because every other night I'm eating a salad or something that could be in there somewhere. And if we don't have this data, it's harder to find the sneaky parts that are getting past us. Yeah. Now I know that you do more than just the speedball, right? You, you've got Pilates work that you do with, is that with clients or is that a separate component? Pilates is one of my tools, you know, at the, at the core of what I'm doing, it really is about brain performance. And so Pilates is one of those tools where people that need to get stronger physically, I can bring in the patterning aspect and the brain plasticity aspect to create exercises on the Pilates equipment that can make you stronger. But the thing for me is like, it doesn't have to be so complicated and it can be really simple and it can be fun. And so, yeah, I do, I do, I do work with a handful of clients like that, but a lot of the work that I do is making this accessible and easy for people because hiring somebody who teaches Pilates, that's great, but just doing Pilates doesn't give you brain performance necessarily. I mean, there's some aspects, but it's really the looking through the lens of understanding the brain is plastic and the way in is through the senses. So if, if we're not incorporating training the senses into whatever your life is, whatever you're doing, Pilates or weights or whatever, running, Kempo, whatever you're doing. If you're not bringing in the senses and that's where your deficits are, you'll hit a plateau. You want to achieve whatever goal you're trying to achieve. For you, I would, I would have you measure your Kempo. I would really look at like a few measuring points and go, go do your training. And then before the next training, play the game and do the training again. We can measure that your leg goes higher, that you're faster, that you see sharper, your response time is faster. You like These are things that you might become aware of. So yeah, I, well, I, I do lots of things and it's one of my tools, but it's still all through the lens of brain performance. And that's not that's not Pilates by itself. That's a, you know, that's a whole different kind of world and it's fantastic. And I, I encourage people to do it, but, I'm, but just to be clear, it's like, it doesn't automatically come with brain performance wrapped into it. I was thinking more along the lines of you're using it as a tool, like you said, like it's just another thing in your arsenal. Yeah. A lot of times I use it in my measurements, you know, my clients that come in and they're coming in for, for Pilates and it's like, they get stuck and they, their lower back has problems or their neck has problems. And so then we do sensory training and then they go back to an exercise and like, Oh, I can do it now. I couldn't do it before. What happened? what did you do? <laughs> and we just train their eyes and train their inner ear so that they could be stronger sense wise. So they could have better output in their body. Because it's worth noting, like this isn't a scoliosis conversation, but it's really worth noting when it comes to, to like physical movement. And this can go with ADHD. If you have someone who has limited range of motion in their spine and the spine has so many nerve endings, and if you can have mobility in your spine, it actually helps with regulation. So whether there's a diagnosed spine issue or not, if you can have spine mobility, then it improves regulation, improves focus because of the nerve firing. And so when you're playing a game that requires eye range of motion, and your spine rotation actually follows your eye, your eye range. So you improve spine mobility if you can improve eye range. So just, just to show you how, like going back to your physical question before, it, it all ties right back to physical input and input to physical mobility. I can see that. I, uh, personal experience, I mentioned Kempo sort of, we're just opening up again, right? We're, we're just within the past few weeks, like hitting each other again and that, and that kind of stuff. 
And the other day, this is, I think, two weeks ago, my sensei did a takedown on me. I hadn't been taken down in well over a year, right? And it was wonderful. Like, I, I, I'm really good at falling. Like, I roll well and control my body on the way down and all that stuff really well. But so I roll, I hit, I hit the ground and it was like, I pop back up with a big grin on my face and I'm like, and I, I'm not going to lie. I'm getting up there in age. I'm 44 years old. Like COVID has kept me more sedentary than I want to admit. Getting up off the ground has been like a little bit of an effort recently, which is not true for me. That's not a thing. So I did notice as I came up, I was like, that was like getting up, like was nothing. So that's good. Yay. Um, and I had a big grin on my face. So my sensei beat me up some more because he's not used to people popping back up with smiles on their face. <laughs> um, he was like, what? But part of part of what I like about falling is that spine stuff is feeling like, I don't know, the sensory input that my back is receiving from the ground, I suppose. That to me is rewarding almost. And I, I sound like I'm crazy but I'm not hitting the ground all that hard. It's not like he's trying to hurt me, but the rolls and the, even a flat back bump, sure, that's information that I usually don't get. And my back is really sensitive. I hold most of my stress there. So getting thrown around helps me loosen up some of that stress. Is that in here somewhere that set that spinal information in terms of just the sensory nature of? Yeah. So I would, I would say, you know, for people that are listening, you could, you could feel the spine, the effect of the eyes and the spine really simply. If you just or just sit in a chair and take your eyes to the right and rotate to the right, rotate your whole spine as far as you can go to the right and just feel how far that goes. And then take your eyes to the left and rotate to the right. And you'll see you get an immediate blockage on how far the spine will go. And then if you go back to look to the right and rotate to the right, you'll gain back the mobility because your eyes and their strength and mobility determine how much you can move your spine. It's pretty profound. Same thing if you're gonna like round your body or extend your body. If you look down and you round your body, it's pretty easy. If you look up and you try to round down, you'll feel the short circuit. It's like, no, that is not, that's not how this works. <laughs> so there's a reflex with the eyes when it comes to spine movement. And since you can feel that, it's, it's a nice way to help people see the connection between how strong your eyes are and how well you move your body and how well you process and function in your day. I have a question that keeps popping up into my head as we talk about eye stuff. It might not be one you can answer, so feel free to be like, I don't know. I don't have anything for you on this one. Sure. I'm wondering if you've had any experience around the effects of smartphones on the eyes as it relates to everything we've been discussing. Yeah, you know, um, smartphone and postures com com comes up a lot. Like they're in their phones, so your posture is rounded and you work and then say, okay, let's do things that like, like fix your posture. So sit up and, and try to hold your phone and try to like manufacture a different posture. But the reality is, is that your phone's here and you're looking down and you're not looking around. So you're actually going from a, a big screen that you might be on a computer looking around at various places, which is still pretty limited range of motion in your eyes, by the way, to a smaller screen, now you're barely moving your eyes. So for me, the bigger concern here is around how little range of motion you have for your eyes and how fixated they are in one spot in such a small little range of motion. And yes, the posture is going forward because you're looking down. So if you can, you do other things where you're looking up and out and sideways and around and, and circular motions, then that's what can help adjust and fix that phone posture. And then also think about getting antsy and getting like agitated and anxiety. 
sitting with your eyes still for a long time and not moving them, you're not, you're not giving your body a, a regulation hack with the eye movement gives you. Just playing a game of catch with the ball or just even going for a walk, you're like, oh, I feel better because you're moving your body and you're looking around and you're in nature and you're seeing different things and there's depth perception. Things are going by you. Cars are going by you. You see dogs running and just having that different varied visual input. So I see that a lot. Where can people find you and the Brain Speedballs? Yeah, you can find me at fireupyourbrain.com and the Brain Speedball is there. We have a program for kids. It's a really simple program to get through. So it's nothing that you have to take a long time online because we're not trying to keep kids online. We're trying to get them using the ball and not sitting in front of the computer for hours to learn how to do it. But um, there's programs there for kids. And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? I think that the, the thing that I really think I want to help people understand is that this, this is an easy and simple way through the eyes to improve brain performance and to improve the ability to focus but it really requires wanting and accepting the possibility and the lens of going, okay, better eye performance equals <laughs> better everything. If, if you don't mind, I want to share just one more story because this is somebody that is not my client that actually uses the ball. And it's, I think it's a, a testament to how simple it can be because I think when we're as kids, as parents with kids with ADHD, we spend a lot of time and resources and brain power trying to fix the situation and trying to, and we're exhausted. There's a lot of decisions to make and there's a lot of fatigue involved. And there's a lot of family dynamics that get strained around the issues, the side effects of ADHD. And so there was a mom um, who called me, she's from Chicago and she called me and she wanted to tell me what happened with her daughter. So she was given a brain speed ball for her use by a friend. She left it on the counter and her daughter, her 13 year old daughter found it and started playing just on her own against the wall, bouncing it back and forth. and making up words with the letters and just came, coming up with her own games. And she said, Trent, for the first time in my daughter's life, she could sit and do homework. And you, she's like, and that's great. And that changed her life. But you have to understand what it did for our family. Because the stress in our family and our household, when every day is a fight to do homework, every day is a struggle and emotional roller coaster around that, that complication, that's gone. <laughs> and that's really the beautiful part of this. And so you said earlier, it sounds like magic. And yeah, it feels like magic. It's how is that possible? When you don't address something that is so important and vital to your function, and then you do address it, <laughs> that's a flip and a light switch. So it does feel like magic because you've never done it before. And now you're learning a new skill and it really lights the brain on fire because it's a direct line to the brain. So it's simple. Please know that it's really simple and it's meant to be a fun game. And, you know, I don't, I don't, when I have kids that have ADHD, we don't talk about ADHD. We don't talk about whatever their diagnosis is. We talk about what sport they play, what they like to do, what they want to accomplish, what they're trying to be in their life, and then measure that. And then the parents measure the ADHD things. Like, oh, they can do homework. Oh, they can focus better. That's cool. But what's important to the kid? That's what I want to focus on. That's what I'll leave you with. You're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week.
In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.